0: Hello everyone, it's June 30th, 2020. So, Bob and Doug demoed a Crew Dragon, and now, one of them is being put to work switching out batteries on station. Also, NASA is moving one step closer to Sub-C. Don't know what that is? Well, I didn't know either, but it's gonna be a thing. Alright, let's talk about it, and lift off. And we've cleared the tower welcome to episode 266 of the orbital mechanics podcast i'm david
1: i'm ben and i'm dennis so i i have a request so i told you guys i was potentially looking at moving to pennsylvania
0: mm. you're always potentially moving somewhere actually i, I think i lost track i didn't, I didn't know pennsylvania oh. i might have forgotten <laughs> so
1: last year i was given a job offer that might have taken me to virginia and i turned down the job offer but uh yeah i'm actually gonna be move into Pennsylvania now. Mm. Like unless something major happens, yeah, it's gonna happen probably at the end of July. Um oh, wow, that's soon. Yeah. So uh my partner Corey is starting her PhD program at Penn State. And oh. uh there are just a bunch of things that all lined up and my plan was to go out there at some point and you know follow her out there at some point, but just too many things all lined up at once. And it was like, okay, I can't ignore all these these green flags. I I gotta go. Mm-hmm. So if there's anybody in the Penn State area, so like State College, get in touch. I would l- love to have somebody that I know out there. And, uh, you know, I, I am always interested in advice or impressions from a local. So it's probably the major reason why I'm running so slow today. <laughs> it's because <laughs> for the last week, uh, I basically finalized the decision to go Uh, about a week ago like last weekend and just this last week has been applying for as many jobs as i can and just working i mean work has been really busy and just i I have not done anything but work and planning for the move pretty much for the last week so yeah
0: big move like from one coast to the other that's gonna be i know right this
1: will be the first time that i've ever lived in eastern time so that'll be interesting
0: There was a spacewalk last week or this week. And I guess this is like an update on Demo 2 as well as a recap of the spacewalk, which was a good solid eight hours, I think. At least That was a total YouTube video length. That's kind of how I know these things. So a good full day of spacewalking. (laughs) I I think that that's how they make these things right. You know, they'll find some other tasks for them to do if, you know, they can get it done in just a few hours. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of weird that, like, you go out, uh, like, on a spacewalk and you know you're going to be out there for at least eight hours. That's just, you know, yeah, that's a full day right there
2: right that's going to be what three six like five sunrise sunsets that you'll encounter
0: yeah <laughs> that's a full five days work then huh right.
2: <laughs> <laughs> five
1: space days
0: five sidereal days so i guess first we have a history of batteries i guess we need to start there
2: i think it'd just be useful to kind of frame things right because we've been talking about these batteries for you know a couple of years now and so just to kind of you know recap right the, the the kind of big move is to replace these uh larger less efficient uh nickel helium or sorry nickel hydrogen batteries with lithium ion ones they're smaller they're kind of more uh powerful so you basically for every two nickel hydrogen ones you only need a single lithium ion replacement and so these batteries laid at the uh, or lay at the uh, S4 and S6 and P4 and P6 trusses so right, on the port and starboard sides uh, four line closer to the center of the station and six line further out. And in January 2016 uh, was the first uh, series of EVAs to replace them. It takes about uh, four or five EVAs to do it. Uh, I think they schedule four to replace the batteries and then have a, a fifth day for, you know, any overhead uh, that's needed if they fall behind. And so, yeah, in January 2017, Shane Kimbrough, uh, Peggy Whitson, and uh, Thomas Pesquet. Uh, did the first uh, series to replace the S4 truss batteries, uh, so that was taken care of three years ago.
1: Isn't it Thomas Pesquet? Thomas Pesquet, yeah. To-
2: yeah, ah, Thomas I'd Pesquet. Never, there you go. I'd never yeah. heard it said before. Thank you. So Thomas Pesquet. And then March uh, 2019, they worked on the P4 truss. So this was uh, Anne McClain, Nick Hague, and Christina Cook. Uh, and this was the one where Anne McClain had the uh, the suit fitting uh, issue, and so. Um, <laughs> uh that was that was that one so that could have been the first kind of historic uh, all female uh spacewalk but in any event they still did good work on replacing the batteries and so at that point the two uh the the S4 and P4 tru- uh trusses had their batteries replaced from last October to uh 2019 to this January they completed work on the P6 truss and so this was uh again Christina Cook Drew Morgan and Jessica Meir this time and um they squared things away. Uh, that was the when you had the first all-female uh, spacewalk with uh, Cook and Mir. And now the last one that's left, uh, the last set of them, is the uh, S6 Truss. And this time the idea is to finish things up by the end of the summer, maybe in the next month or so. And then finally, this kind of three and a half year, <laughs> very, very long involved uh, battery replacement uh, series of spacewalks will be finished.
1: So if you can't, visualize where the p4 and p6 trusses are and the s4 and s6 trusses just thinking about uh, the solar panels each of the solar panel pairs each of the wings connects to either a 4 or a 6. So you don't have to really count segments outward. You can just think about where those uh solar arrays are. The
2: truss segments out like to me at least they kind of blend together roughly. You know, it's it's tough for yeah. me to tell when one ends and the next one begins. And so yep. like you say matching, you know, the the fours and the sixes to the solar panels at least is you know, the easy way to think of it. So again, these these actually, I realized I misspoke before. Replacing the uh, the the fours, the batteries that were in the the, the S four and P four trusses, that one probably didn't require as many EVAs because it's it was closer to the, the center of the station, and so it it was also within reach of Canadarm two and Dexter, which basically did a lot of the uh, uh, heavy lifting. Although the lifting is very
1: light course and yeah Hi, high mass lifting right high zero weight lifting. high mass
0: all the high inertia work yeah <laughs> there you go the massive moving i so said the heavy lifting <laughs> yeah massive moving right. there
1: you go i like that
2: so uh so this most recent spacewalk um uh involved using batteries that were brought up from the uh h2 transfer vehicle or hdv9 uh that you know jackson brought up in may uh last month and so uh this specifically was uh, US EVA-65. And so um, Bob Bankin and Chris Cassidy were the two astronauts uh, that did this EVA. Bank was wearing the white stripe, Cassidy was wearing the red stripe. Each of these trusses, they've got a big uh, integrated electronics assembly there, the IEA, and that's where the batteries are housed. And each uh, truss uh, seems to have two power channels. And the, the two channels in this case were uh, 1B and 3B. And so the idea why you have these five EVAs per battery p- replacement was that you would do two batteries per EVA and then have that uh, fifth EVA as kind of the backup. again. Okay. So the, th- this time they were working on the 1B uh, power channel. And uh, a really cool thing about this was, you know, Bank and Cassidy are kind of, you know, semi-household names, you know, at least when it comes mm-hmm. to astronauts. They're kind of, you know, they're really, you know, badass veterans, you know. And so this was their seventh spacewalk for each of them. They actually finished 90 minutes ahead of schedule. So they have a leg up on the, the upcoming uh, next EVA. And so they really took care of business. And most of the time, right, they're basically moving between the uh, the IEA uh, the integrated electronics assembly, and a um, pallet that had the uh, uh, the batteries, uh, the new batteries, as well as, you know, slots for placing some of the older uh, batteries. And so they were able to re- uh, remove three of the old ones uh, and install two of the uh, three new ones, um, along with uh, their corresponding adapter plates. And uh, the whole EVA, like... Uh, yeah, like you alluded to before, uh, David, You know, it was uh, six hours and seven minutes. It uh, was the official time that they clocked in. Oh,
0: really? Okay. Okay, yeah, I guess that was the EVA portion and uh, not the time spent in the airlock. Right. So the old batteries, what do they do with them? Did, did they mount them somewhere on the exterior of the station? Like That's they do interesting.
2: With... It's a mix. Some of them okay. went on the pallet. So what, what's what's ultimately going to happen to the ones on the pallet bin? They'll, they'll be deorbited. Yeah, they'll sure. be deorbited. Okay, I thought I heard that, yeah. Uh, whereas uh, some of them, though, were just put in some of the empty slots because, remember, you need less lithium ion Mm-hmm. ones. And so, yeah, at uh, one of the ones in this EVA, one of the old batteries was basically just moved to a different slot still in the mm-hmm. IEA.
1: They can stack on top of the adapter plates, I believe.
2: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Okay. I, I didn't know if I was remembering that correctly, but so if you're not, we've talked about these adapter plates on the show before, but basically if you think about like a nine volt battery, it's got two terminals on one side. If you had to replace a nine volt battery with a triple A, you would like put the AAA on one contact and then run a wire from the back of the AAA to the other contact, right? So that's basically what's happening here. Instead of having two batteries um, that are connected in series, you have one battery and then an adapter plate that completes the circuit. And so those adapter plates are just super thin, and they're just there to to complete the circuit, and so they've got lots of room to put things on top of them. And it's it's not like a super clever thing to do. Like it seems like a, a readily apparent solution, but uh, it's still very elegant to be able to use to to build the top of those adapter plates in such a way that you can store the uh, the old batteries on top of them. It's a very good example mm-hmm. of thinking the whole process through. Um, before you begin manufacturing your uh, your articles
0: plus I would imagine it I, I don't know how much it, that this actually helps, but I mean if you keep some of the mass for the station, it might you know keep it in orbit without having to make as many you know um, <laughs> boosts Yeah, just
1: raises the bli- or lowers yeah. the ballistic coefficient by a tiny fraction yeah
0: because <laughs> I figure the batteries are very small and very heavy or at least like very heavy for their size you know so like you have mm. something that's nice and compact and massive couldn't hurt
1: yeah I'm trying to remember what their density is because um, the lithium ions are obviously more dense not only in terms of mass and volume but power and volume too I, I don't think that the nickel hydrogen batteries are are particularly dense um they have pressure vessels so obviously that's heavy but yeah but but yeah i mean uh, i i think they're likely more trouble than they're worth i think the benefit of having a slightly uh, a slightly more what is it you're, you're raising or lowering the drag coefficient i think you're low yeah you're a slightly lower drag coefficient doesn't have as many benefits as would outweigh the negatives of just having the thing sitting around, because they don't—they don't depressurize them, do they? I don't remember. I believe they leave them pressurized, so it's kind of like, well, you got—you got high pressure, or you know, you got hydrogen sitting around. I don't—I don't know. I—I don't think it's that big of a deal, but you know. Yeah. So with the completion
2: of that successful uh, EVA, uh, July first is uh, when the next one's scheduled for, and so this is just going to complete the replacement from the. Uh, Uh, channel 1B, uh, and then ultimately channel, uh, 3B will be worked on at some point. They're thinking mid July, but that hasn't been, uh, identified yet. And so, yeah. And, and the tie to Crew Dragon is just the fact that, right, just a reminder that Bob Bankin and Doug Hurley were sent up there on, you know, it still is a demo mission, but originally it was going to be a much shorter stay. But because Mm -hmm. of, uh, the current state of affairs in the world, they are, uh, doing a much more extended stay. And so they're not going to, they're going to remain on station until at least August 2nd. They'll be there for the rest of July at least.
0: It's kind of like you go. I can't think of a good analogy, but they go just to spend a, a little bit of time, and then they get put to work.
2: I was gonna say I, my my one of my friends' mom was moms was notorious for that. We'd yeah, go there yeah. Play video games in high school, and she'd be like, "Come on, Steve, you got we got chores for you to do." That's kind of <laughs> what happened. <laughs> yeah.
0: So translating on over, since we're talking about spacewalks, well, let's translate to something that's not a spacewalk. Um, mm-hmm. something that is suborbital, which is a suborbital crew, a new program within NASA that I had not heard about up until today. And this is all about putting astronauts and other personnel into suborbital flights to do various tasks, which, you know, we'll talk about. I guess at first I have to say, how strange is that? Because, like, I think about NASA and how they can put people into actual space space, you know, which is to go to orbit. So why would you ever want to do anything suborbital and, you know, have a whole program devoted to that? But there are reasons. But uh, it did kind of take me by surprise because my first thought was, why would you even do this? Like, it just (laughs) seems like, I mean, it seems like something for tourists. Like, you know what I mean? And, of course, you could do stuff. Suborbital without people, but this is, you know, specifically for crew. So why mm-hmm. crew on a suborbital flight? Like that's the big question. Yep. And actually more specifically, this is commercial suborbital crew, which is not included in the little acronym sub C, but yeah, that's actually what we're talking about here. And, uh, the two companies that they're looking at are Virgin Galactic and Blue Origin. So that makes sense because, uh, Blue Origin already has New Shepard and Virgin Galactic, hopefully at some point in you know, the next year or so, we'll actually be able to launch people. But right now, they're still in the very early process. They um, they have uh, put out a request for information, and they're kind of, you know, just like seeking some input from industry as to uh, the safety requirements that they might need, which is interesting because you would think that if anyone would know, it would be NASA. But I guess for suborbital, they don't.
2: So, David, for Virgin Galactic, would this be Spaceship Two, or is that unspecified, or...? Well, cause I mean, that, you know, that did make it.
0: It's unspecified, but I would guess it. it probably would be with perhaps some modifications, obviously, because, you know, they're going to be doing some different activities. But just considering how long it's taken Virgin Galactic to even, you know, qualify spaceship two right. in, which right. is a process that they're still in the middle of. I can't see them doing anything else i I don't know what else it would be yeah so what exactly are the suborbital flights going to be for well there are three classes that were outlined like meaning you know three different categories and the first one is just to train astronauts generally you use uh what's it called the vomit comet there's a better name Mm -hmm. but you know i just know the colloquial and so i'm thinking it's something similar to that like
2: gravity aircraft sorry
0: Right. Reduced gravity aircraft. So this would be reduced gravity spacecraft, suborbital spacecraft. So, but I guess other things too. But yeah, to train astronauts and then also they can use it for the, the testing and qualification of spaceflight hardware by the astronauts, um, as well as other personnel, which is a really cool part. And I think that that's what's most exciting to me is that it's not just astronauts that can take these flights, but actual personnel who just work for NASA in some other capacity. How neat is that? Which Mm -hmm. I'm sure you're, you're going to have to, you know, like know your stuff and be fairly fit, but not really. 'Cause I mean, this is something that a tourist could do. So or you know, presumably. So that's kinda cool.
2: Yeah, could you imagine like writing a proposal and it's like, you know, it's a genuine research question you want to answer, but the way you're kind of writing the proposal is like, yeah. I kinda do want to end up on suborbital hop <laughs> to really test this right.
1: Well, I mean, there there's lots of lots of uh like RF RFPs like sitting around and waiting for this because, or I guess, you know, responses to RFPs because the, um, the reduced, what was the technical term Dennis? Reduced, <laughs> reduced gravity, gravity aircraft. Yeah. Aircraft. Yeah. So, so those flights are what, like 20 seconds of microgravity, whereas spaceship two, I think it's like four minutes. So, yeah. you know, it's, there, there are a lot of things you can't do in 20 seconds. And not only that it's really dirty zero g right like i really started to internalize what this feels like watching the uh, okay go uh, music Mm -hmm. video behind the scenes videos because like you really see like i mean you can see footage of of these flights other places but like those films were so well communicated the experience because you know they're artists and this is what they do and you really get a sense for how dirty the coming in and coming out and then being in that Mm -hmm. microgravity it's it's not True microgravity, obviously, and so spaceship two is so high up out of the atmosphere that you don't have any of the buffeting or you know engine throttling or control that an aircraft needs, and so you know it's it's cleaner um, microgravity. I don't know how clean it is, but you know there there are lots of applications for it. It's just like four minutes is not is still not a lot, and so it, it is a limited. There are lots of good ways to use it, but it's still a limited group of experiments that you can do that can happen in this time frame and are also worth the amount of money it costs. Versus, you know, point. so many other ways of of doing reduced gravity.
2: But it does like, but it does open up that parameter space between you know the twenty mm. second flights and the uh, going to ISS, which, you know, obviously is very, very competitive.
0: I wonder how much room they would have because, you know, the good thing about those planes is that they're big and open and I don't think that Spaceship 2 is. I mean, they can take out seats, I guess, but you don't have a well, lot of room, do you? I
1: mean, it depends on what you mean by lot of room and big and open because the reduced gravity flights, the cabin is really huge, but they use that volume to cram in a lot of people. And so, you know, your experiment size is, is pretty tiny. I mean, you know, we've talked to people who have gone on those flights and looked at their experiments and they're all boxes the size of, you know, uh, a large water cooler or, or, you know, like a, like a soda can camping cooler yeah. or maybe two or three of those. But I mean, it's not that much volume. And so, yeah, you wouldn't be able to fit as many people on each flight, but. I don't think there are that many experiments that need that much room.
0: I guess I don't know who all goes on these flights together because I thought that if it if it was you know like NASA scientists then then they would have their own flight. Nope, absolutely not. No,
1: <laughs> no. Think about. Do you remember that the. Um, the- photo of Emery Stagmer with his uh, uh, 3D, like his uh, reaction control ball.
0: Yeah, reactions here. And like here.
1: in the background were a bunch of different people, you mm-hmm.
0: know? Yeah, but I... Th- Guess I was thinking again. Like that's not like astronaut training; that's more, but it is still training. Or it well, which company was that for? Because that was uh, Northrop the... Grumman, I believe. Northrop Grumman, yeah, something like that. Um, but I was thinking if it was like you know something that was being funded by NASA directly, then no, they maybe buy they would, seats. Um, they it's just... it's
1: the same thing. I mean, mm-hmm. you can look well, at you NASA buy, experiments, yeah. and they they right. buy individual seats, not the whole plane, because it's prohibitively expensive if you buy the whole plane.
2: So New Shepard, to give us an idea, uh, I don't know if you can... So New Shepard can fit six people and Mm -hmm. I can't imagine... I mean, just thinking about uh, the SS Unity, right? I don't think that would fit six people. Maybe I'm wrong. Just when I think about when Beth Moses was up there, I mean, I feel like the three of them... I mean, you know, there was the pilots, so they were strapped in there, but... If there was a second, maybe a third person with her, they'd get really cramped.
1: Well, t- technically, they, they say it's two crew and six passengers, but, I mean, you're you're pretty much sitting in each other's laps at that point. Oh, wow. Okay.
0: And then also, just before I forget, the third category would be human-tended microgravity research, which is kind of, you know, kind of goes hand-in-hand with the whole testing and qualification of spaceflight hardware. Well, I guess not because we're talking about research here. So, yeah, um, there's hardware to be tested, and then there's, you know, like a research to be done that's more scientific, I guess, just for Science for the sake of science, not necessarily qualifying hardware for um, full-on flight to orbit. Those are the things that you can do on these little suborbital flights which is more than I would have thought <laughs> at first. But yeah, this probably isn't going to be happening too soon. So um, again, right now there's just been a request for information and then it could take up to a year just to develop the certification program for this. And then even then they have to have vehicles to fly on and who knows how long that will be. Um, although I think that New Shepard is pretty much ready to go. I don't know what they're waiting for. At least that's what everyone says, you know, like they've had nothing but success with those flights. I don't think they've had any mishaps with any, New Shepard flights, right? I
1: don't
2: remember any.
0: Maybe one, but I'm not even sure.
2: Well, if you try to search the Wikipedia entry for accident, you do not find that word. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And if I remember uh, reading correctly, an interesting facet of this program, too, is that, you know, even though it's still kind of in line with the whole, you know, making everything more commercially, uh, like commercial crew, commercial cargo, uh, clips. But this is, well, this is at least very different than a commercial crew where even though, you know, Starliner and Dragon 2 are entirely, you know, uh, Boeings and SpaceX's, it's their babies. But NASA was still very much involved with the development and seeing kind of what was happening the whole time. But this, if I remember reading correctly, this is kind of Spaceship 2 and New Shepard have been really developed independent of NASA. And so this, to, to have them give NASA flights would be a whole different mode of opening things up to the private sector.
0: Which I think is cool. I mean, that's, you know, I yeah. think still a good step in the right direction. I think it's probably just because they have had such success that, you know, they thought, well, hey, like, well, why not suborbital too? Because, you know, that's something that's waiting in the wings to happen. So, yeah. You
2: know, you, you still got to make it, you know, highly regulated and all that. But um, mm-hmm. if, if, you know, if private companies are capable of doing it, then that's... That's awesome. That opens up a lot, you know, more opportunities for space flight.
0: And also in other spaceship two news, just to give an update on that, there was a second test flight of the VSS Unity, um, or a second drop test rather, right? Cause there was a powered flight last year. Um, yeah, it was like early last year in, mm-hmm. in February of 2019. Then there was,
1: I would call it a glide test because both of oh. them get dropped. It's not drop as opposed to a, you know, vertical. <laughs> oh, launch. I suppose so. Well, cause test. I always
0: think of. Yeah. Well, I think of drop. Yeah. I I guess that would be more technically accurate, drop and glide. Because I think of drop as in it drops in and then it keeps on going down like it doesn't go up (laughs) (laughs) because you know like if it's powered it it drops for a second then it shoots up to you know space and then comes back down but yeah okay a glide test um although then again um they glide back too when they're so so a drop and glide with no power um a non-powered glide test the interesting thing about this test was that there was no announcement made about it and this had to do with the fact that the test was taking place during market hours which i don't understand i mean i guess that hasn't happened before So they didn't want to affect their stock price, I suppose. And so they didn't want to call any attention to that during market hours. Um, But that was the reason that was given, apparently, a bit strange.
1: I, I think it's pretty common to not do live updates I think it's just uncommon that they really said it out loud. SpaceX doesn't announce when they're doing what. Well, so the only reason that we know that SpaceX plans to do any of their tests is because there are people snooping and looking at planned road closures. And we have uh, Boca Chica Mary sitting out with her camera. But like yeah. Blue Origin doesn't. Uh, all, I mean, sometimes they announce tests, but, you know, they don't always announce their tests. Beforehand, and Virgin Galactic, many many times has not announced their tests. Um, what's the other uh, company with the big split or the big two fuselage airplane that went under? They were gonna do oh, launcher the rock, one. Oh, uh, la- Rock.
2: Straddle, straddle launch. Straddle yeah. launch. Yeah,
1: straddle launch never announced their tests, you know, like it's, it's just most companies don't prefer to have to dump the energy into the public relations and they don't prefer to take the risk of that. And they kind of just feel like, well, we're going to do what we're going to do. And you know we're not we don't need to really tell the whole world and I, and I kind of agree with them they don't need to tell the whole world it's It's fun when they do, but
0: although it does annoy me that you know like you were saying, Blue Origin tells us nothing ever so <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> well, billionaires and their toys, yeah
0: but uh the one thing about this flight that does distinguish it from the last glide test was that this had gotten up to some higher speeds, which was Mach zero point eight five and this is to better simulate a reentry from space so from their maximum altitude, which I believe is like eighty kilometers somewhere around there so they still have some more flight tests to do the only big changes that will happen are just some modifications to quote unquote the customer cabin interior so this is you know i guess the final polished vehicle and what that would be for actual paying customers and
2: microgravity research
0: yeah and that too now i suppose (laughs) um so, yeah, they have some tweaks to make, uh, I guess, just to, like, just to make it a little bit more comfortable because I feel like if you're going to be paying this kind of money for these things and you want to be sort of an experience, you know, you don't want to be strapped into something that looks like, you know, a cargo carrying plane or helicopter or something like you want. I mean, not like champagne or anything because that's not practical, but the next best thing, although maybe they'll be serving food like microgravity food. We'll get there. We'll get there. actually. <laughs> yeah. Maybe just a little beverage cart.
1: <laughs> some crudite. <laughs> All right, we
2: got
0: four shorts and sweets. What is our first one, Dennis?
2: Well, first up, ISRO opens up spaceflight to the private sector. The Indian Space Agency's chairperson, Kay Savan, has announced new ways in which the private sector will be allowed to build rockets, and satellites, and provide launch services. The supreme decision-making body in the country, the Union Cabinet, okayed a proposal to set up the Indian National Space Promotion and Authorization Center, or InSpace. space. The reform is meant to accelerate growth of the country's space sector and enable private companies to participate in interplanetary missions.
1: Next up, ULA completes wet dress rehearsal ahead of Perseverance launch. SLC-41 saw some activity this week as the Atlas V planned to fly Perseverance on July 20th, completed a wet dress rehearsal. Perseverance and Ingenuity arrived at the Cape in May and will be integrated soon. A video recently resurfaced of the Ingenuity helicopter performing a Mars Atmosphere flight test at JPL. See the show notes for a link.
0: Next up, SpaceX plans a booster recovery for a military satellite. SpaceX will launch its second GPS satellite on June 30th and recover the launch's first stage booster. Until now, national security missions have required expendable boosters. For its first GPS launch in 2018, SpaceX had to remove the booster's landing legs and grid fins as the Air Force had determined the Falcon 9 could not Performed the mission trajectory otherwise. Uh, However, the U.S. Space Force has revised some mission requirements allowing for booster recovery, though there are still no plans to fly any national security missions on previously flown boosters, so that's actually really cool.
1: And finally, Canadarm3 contract has been signed. Canadian engineering company McDonald, Detweiler & Associates or MDA, merged with Digital Globe in 2017 to become Maxar, which then domesticated to the U.S. A few months ago, however, However, MDA was separated again and sold to Canadian investors. It's now reprising its role as an expert robotic arm design and construction company. MDA previously constructed Canadarm for SDS and Canadarm2 for ISS. Unsurprisingly, the planned robotic arm for the Lunar Gateway will be constructed by this Canadian firm for Canada Space Agency and will be called Canadarm3. Oh yeah, and and Dexter. I didn't. I didn't. I almost added Dexter, but I figured we're talking about Canadarms, and, and I really like how, um like, I love how proud Canada is of the Canadarms. Like, that's great, and that's a wonderful contribution. But I think it's really interesting that that company was an American company for like two or three years.
0: <laughs> All right, so moving on to this week in spaceflight history, um, we have three winners. Uh, We have Chubby, the Greek, and Ben Hallert. Um, So not as many as I would have thought, actually. Um, But there was a hard clue, and the clue is smarter than a deformed copper disk. And, yeah, I had no idea what that meant. Mm -hmm. So what does that mean?
1: Yeah, so um, no one guessed the copper disk bit, um, but I'll talk about that in a sec. So this week in spaceflight history is the 4th of July, 2005. Boy, what? I mean like movie title day, right? Uh, Deep impact strikes Temple 1. So you got Independence Day, you got Deep Impact. I mean, it's just (laughs) all over the place. Um, Okay, so Temple 1. It is a Jupiter family comet. Uh, I should probably have left uh, some space for geology for Dennis here, but I'm going to talk about the astronomy because I don't know. I'm not a planetary sciences guy. Uh, it was discovered on April 3rd, 1867 by Wilhelm Temple in Marseille. And back then it was calculated to have a period of 5.81 years. In 1873 and 1879, we reobserved it, um, as it came, you know, closer to the earth. And then in 1898 and 1905, we expected to see it. And neither of those windows were we able to find it. Uh So the thing just disappeared. Astronomers at the time believed that it must have broken up. However, Brian Marsden, after we learned more about the solar system and gained the ability to do some more complex predictions, uh, uh an astrophysicist named Brian Marsden—actually, I don't know if he's an astrophysicist. He's doing orbital calculations, so I'm assuming, but I'm sorry if I got the, the field wrong—but he calculated— that in 1881, it would have come within 0.55 AU of Jupiter, which is enough to really perturb its orbit to the point where we wouldn't have been able to see it where we expected it to. So previously, it had a period of 5.81 years. This changed the orbit to 6.5 years. So that's, that's a huge difference, right? Not only did it change the period, but it also um, increased the perihelion. I mean, you know, changing the periods or whatever. But part of that change was the perihelion rose by 50 million miles, which means that it no longer came as close to Earth as it used to. And Temple 1 is a very dim object at the best of times. And so we basically had no hope of being able to see it.
2: Yeah, that's, that's a third of an AU. A third of an Earth's distance yeah. to give you a sense of scale. <laughs> that's huge. Oh, wait. No, I screwed up. I, I read that as 50 million kilometers, which would be a third of an AU. This is more like half of an AU. So that's even yeah. bigger. Wow. Yeah.
1: Yeah. 93 million miles is is an AU. So not only did it get perturbed in 1881, it also got re-perturbed in 1941 and 1973. And those two close passes with Jupiter were much more favorable Uh, for curious humans. So in uh, 1967, uh, an astronomer named Elizabeth Romer rediscovered the comet. And what's really cool is she was setting out intending to image it, and she thought that she had been unsuccessful. Um, But on review the next year or the year later um she actually found it in one of her slides so she only got one exposure of it which of course isn't enough to be able to really lock down its orbital parameters but it's enough to confirm that Marsden was correct so they uh Romer and another astronomer uh who was working with her were able to kind of revisit The changes in the orbit and prepare for another close pass in 1972. And in 1972, they were able to get enough photos to lock in the orbital characteristics. So right now, it's still in that same orbit. Uh, It's an orbit of 4.7 AU by 1.5 AU. um, And that gives it a period of 5.58 years. And it is locked into a resonance with Jupiter now. I think it's a one to two resonance. Well, 5.5 years is probably a one one to three resonance. Okay, so that's Temple 1. Now let's talk about Deep Impact. Deep Impact was a mission launched on January 12th, 2005 on a Delta II in the 7925 configuration. And Deep Impact had a really scary first day. Um, after separating from the uh, PAM upper stage it started to detumble itself, right? Because, you know, that separation is imparting some tum or some spin to the vehicle. So it starts to detumble itself and then immediately goes into safe mode. Um, and it turns out what happened was the RCS catalyst beds, right? Cause they're, they're monopropellant, uh, thrusters. So those catalyst beds have got temperature sensors. And, um, the vehicle monitors those temperature sensors. And if they go above a certain limit, it shuts everything down and goes into safe mode because it thinks it's about to blow up. Turns out the fault protection software had the incorrect temperature limit set in its, you know, its lookup table or whatever. And so they, all they had to do was wake the thing back up, change that variable, and they were good. After that, the mission was nearly perfect. There was one other issue that I'll talk about in a sec. Um, but otherwise, um, this thing got to skip multiple uh to tra- trajectory correction uh um, maneuvers TCMs, uh, and it it performed brilliantly. I mean it's a it's a fantastic mission. I should have looked up how many flybys of Earth it did, because basically it used multiple flybys to speed up as much as it could, but it basically stayed very, very close to Earth's orbit and uh, just boosted up a little bit to get up to that 1.5 AU distance the Temple One experiences at its perihelion uh, at the lowest point in its orbit. And it actually met it within a week of its perihelion. So we we really had economy on our side here. We were able to meet up with um, with Temple 1 when it was moving its fastest and moving its its lowest. So Deep Impact was made up of two discrete vehicles. Maybe, I mean, yeah, we, we have to call them two two separate vehicles. So there's the flyby section. Uh, it's about, it's 2.3 by 1.7 by 2.3 meters. So kind of a, a box large enough to to comfortably sit in or to comfortably stand in, right? Like this is like a pod apartment kind of thing. We're talking about. And it had two main uh, science instruments on board HRI and MRI. HRI is the high resolution imager. It was a visible light camera with a filter wheel so that it could do uh, color images. And it had uh, an imaging infrared spectrometer built into it. So, an infrared spectrometer that is, you know, two dimensional, right? Here's the other big problem with this mission after the bakeout period which is you know once the hardware has been on orbit for long enough and has been sitting in the sun you know it kind of acclimates to not being in earth's atmosphere and that's when you can start doing instrument checkouts so after the bakeout period hri returned fuzzy images and this is not a hubble situation where you can send up additional hardware and people to install it um they had what they had Um, luckily, uh, imaging processing software is really good at handling this type of distortion. Um, and in fact, they used, um, an imaging, an image processing method that is used anyway, even in the best of circumstances to increase resolution. And so they, they weren't able to get up to the full intended resolution, but they restored quote unquote much of the resolution, even with that problem they still were able to spot the comet nine days before they were supposed to or before they expected to they were expected to be able to spot it 60 days before uh, the flyby and they actually spotted it 69 days before the flyby the other instrument was mri the medium resolution imager it was primarily used for navigation but it was also planned as a science backup it was a visible light camera with a filter wheel um, it was very similar to HRI, um, but the filter wheel had slightly different spectra, I guess, uh, in the, in the filters.
2: Uh, bands, I guess. Cause I mean, bands. filters, if, if you walk yourself into a, yeah, a wall like that, bands could also work.
1: Bands, okay. So that's, uh, the flyby section. Uh, I, w- section is weird called a module or something. I don't know. But that that's the that's the main spacecraft. Then it has a smaller spacecraft attached to it called the Smart Impactor. The Smart Impactor had technically, yeah, technically I'd say it had two instruments on board. Uh the first is ITS, the Impactor Targeting Sensor. It's an exact duplicate of the MRI on the flyby section, only it had no filter wheel and the ITS is is really a cool instrument because it was primarily used for navigation but they also then turned it around and imaged the comet with it so it's this nice um multi-use uh camera so it transmitted its images back to um back to the flyby section in real time and then the flyby section as you'd expect transmits them back home Uh, over several days in this case. The smart impactor though, even though it was using the lower resolution camera or the medium resolution camera, its best images got a resolution of 0.2 meters per pixel. And as you might guess from the name, this is an impactor. So it got quite close. It got quite close to the comet. Um, And so those super high resolution images were very high resolution because they were very close. And those images were actually taken up to three seconds before impact, which is insane. I I just think it's crazy. Um, The smart impactor returned a total of about 4,500 images. Uh, So really not a slouch, let's say. So smart And smart impactor doesn't just refer to the cameras. It also refers to its ability to do trajectory adjustments. Um, it was designed to be able to do four of these guys after it was released from the flyby section. And of course, it's seven and a half light minutes away. So it's all automated, but it has 24 hours of free flight from separation to impacting the comet. And so it can, you know, it can basically fly. It's like a little drone, right? It can fly around Mm. and make sure that it uh, lines itself up properly. So the, first uh, scientific instrument is the ITS. I'm going to be very liberal and call the cratering mass the second scientific instrument. So the cratering mass was 100 kilograms of copper, but there was an additional 82 gram, uh, 82 kilograms-ish of copper on the vehicle. Um, and they basically used copper anywhere that they could because... It wasn't expected to be found in the comet, and so it'd be easy to ignore as part of the uh, makeup of the comet. So, the cratering mass is the bulk of the impact, but really the the whole vehicle smacked into this comet. And the cratering mass only made up a a third of its weight. So, anyway, this thing smacked into the comet at 10.3 kilometers per second. Like, that's mind-bogglingly fast. Mm. (laughs) That's terrifying. Wow. Um, so it impacted with 1.96 times 10 to the 10th jewels, which is the equivalent of 4.7 tons of TNT. So consider, it's funny because this was one of the first impactor type missions like this. And so the public, the the PAO, the public affairs office really talked about why, like how it had to explain why they were using copper instead of an explosive. And they basically said, well, if we could put a hundred kilograms of TNT on the surface and explode it. It would be nothing compared to the 4.7 tons of TNT. That's the equivalent of smacking it. And granted, yeah, you know, you'd be hard pressed to slow it down, <laughs> uh, slow down the TNT so that you could have it stationary. But anyway, it's, it's really amazing how important inertia is, right? All right. So that impact was expected to create a crater. 100 meters round. Uh, A few minutes later after this impact, um, the flyby section made its closest approach and it flew past uh, at 500 kilometers. Interestingly enough, they talk about the final trajectory correction maneuver of the joined pair uh, before separation as having a required precision of 100 kilometers. But I believe that 100-kilometer precision, right, which is nothing compared to 500 kilometers. Like, if you pass at 500 kilometers and you could have been 400, like, that doesn't seem like a lot of precision. But um that 100-kilometer precision was from much farther back, and that was targeting the impactor release, I believe. Um And then the flyby deflects later, which would be, you know, like a day before impact. So this lowest approach is... Probably more precise than 100 kilometers is the way that I interpret this. But when it did pass, the crater that was formed was completely obscured by the dust cloud. And so the scientists had no idea how big uh, the, the crater actually turned out. And I'm going to leave us at that very awkward place for... Um, an unstated reason. Okay. So the clue this week uh, was smarter than a deformed copper disc, and that was referencing Hayabusa 2's small carry-on impactor experiment, which uh, did have explosive on board. And when I was, I I was looking for a clue about another, uh, an impactor from another mission. And uh, I just, I love the way that Hayabusa, uh, Hayabusa's impactor works you know it's basically like a shotgun shell that floats around in space mm-hmm. but the impactor is a copper disc that kind of sits on top of a chamber a, a conical chamber full of explosive almost like a party popper you know how they've got the piece of paper on the mm. on the mouth and when it when the uh when the explosive fires that disc actually turns into like a bullet shape almost and it just it, it deforms it into this really wonderful tumbler shape like a like a cup and just uh, i don't know it's really pleasing so i just i had to make it clear why that clue uh was selected and that's specifically a copper disc not a hundred kilogram lump of copper <laughs> um but there you go all right so that's this week in spaceflight history
0: so the clue then for next week um i feel like this one might be a little bit easier, but we'll see. So what would that clue be?
1: All right. Next week in 1998, the clue is low slung rocket,
0: low slung rocket in 1998. All right. Uh, well, if you think you know what that is about, give us a tweet with the hashtag this week SF and good luck. Good luck, everybody. Let's move on then to upcoming space flight events. Just one, well, two things, one launch, one spacewalk, uh, spacewalk part two, but uh, we'll start with the launch.
2: Yeah. So, so our launch will be on uh, July 3rd. And so this firework is a, uh, an electron that'll be taking an electron uh, with the mission name PIX, or it didn't happen. And so this is a uh, rocket that's taking a whole lot of imaging uh, uh, satellites. And so it'll be carrying the uh, CESat-1B, which is an Earth imaging satellite for Canon Electronics, um, five SuperDove Earth Observation CubeSats for Planet, and a uh, Faraday-1, uh, the Faraday-1 CubeSat for in-space missions. And so... Um, This launch again July 3rd will take place at 2113, or with a window from 2113 to 2203 UTC. For people on the East Coast, that's 513 to 603 p.m. And, uh, you know, it being Rocket Lab, it'll be launching out of their uh, Launch Complex 1 in uh,
1: New Zealand. And before that happens, sorry, we're kind of doing these things a little backwards that's okay all right so before that happens um will be this spacewalk that we've been talking about so this is spacewalk 66 it's happening on july 1st which is wednesday the coverage uh, will begin at 6 a.m eastern time the spacewalk is scheduled to begin at 7 35 a.m eastern time and we're hoping it's gonna take uh seven hours um of course last time they got things done sooner so hopefully uh hopefully that will happen again as well all right and with that those are your upcoming spaceflight events
0: cool all right well let's uh do over the show then and we would like to thank ronald Jenkins and tim dodd for our music
2: we record live on sundays at 9 AM pacific 12 p.m eastern thank you so much to our five dollar and up patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly.
1: if you want to support the show as well please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit the slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links,
0: and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies.
2: You can join our Discord for free during social distancing. Check out our Twitter or Reddit for links, or we'll podcasts on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com
0: Alright, so that is it. and We will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you